projects in a moment. Um, just on mission stuff, Hugh and Mary go off to Nepal uh, on Wednesday. If anyone can give them a lift in the afternoon, let me know or get in touch with them. But just, just pray for them as well. And remember Mark and Liz who are out in Rwanda together with Emily. Um, and Ian Campbell is off again too to North Africa, isn't it, this week? Having just returned from Africa, so catch up with Ian afterwards over coffee. That would be great. So good to remember them. Good. Well, we're continuing this um, series on reconciliation. And the subject today that uh, is part of that series is that reconciliation is not about justice. And I've got two scriptures to work with. One is on the front of your leaflet, which says, The payment for sin is death, but God gives the free gift of life forever in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the other scripture I'm working with is from Matthew 20, and it's the story about the workers in the vineyard. But before I talk about that, Steve is going to read it to us. He's reading from the NIV, but I've tweaked it a bit, so it's a little bit more relevant to us, hopefully, in the 21st century. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, and do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at six in the morning to hire men to work in the vineyard. He agreed to pay them eighty pounds for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine a.m. he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, and then at three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About 5 p.m., he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long, do doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. 
He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at 5 p.m. came and each received 80 pounds. So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received 80 pounds. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for 80 pounds? Take your pay and go. I want to give, I want to give the man who was last hired the same as, as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Great. Thanks, Steve. Good. Uh, what I want to do this morning is just look at that passage in particular and say, well, what can we learn about God and following Jesus, and what does that mean for us? And I'm going to make a couple of quotes to start with. Mike, I'm reading a very good book called Read Jesus by Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. It's one of those nice provocative books. And they say this. This will shock you. <laughs> there they are, that'll wake you up, just saying that. It appears that a good church upbringing will do many marvellous things for you. But one of the unfortunate things it does is convince you that Jesus is to be worshipped but not followed. C.S. Lewis said this, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It's even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. It says in the Bible that the whole universe was made for Christ and that everything is to be gathered together in him. I'm glad C.S. Lewis wrote that. If it was me, you'd see me as a heretic. <laughs> We've listened to Matthew 20, and if you, if you noticed, because I forgot to say, we started reading in Matthew 19. <laughs> and uh, there's a reason for that, because if you read Matthew 20, it starts, For the kingdom of heaven is like... Well, that implies that it's the middle of a conversation, in the way I read it. Four is the middle of something. So you have to see how that story of the vineyard ends. And it ends with an argument or a question about what is the goodness of God look like? Um, because if you remember, it says, if you're, is your eye envious because I'm generous? Or if you translate that literally, it's something like, um, is your eye evil because I'm good? So if you jump back to the previous chapter, you'll see that there was a man who came to Jesus who said, um, good master, good teacher, I want to know all about this goodness thing. How do I get eternal life? And so this whole section is sandwiched together, I think. So it's about the goodness of God and following Jesus. So the man addresses Jesus, this ruler, this rich young fellow, and says, how can I get eternal life? What goodness do I need to do? And Jesus says, good? Only God is good. 
And then he reminds him of the Jewish commandments. But he doesn't remind him of all of them. Have you noticed? (laughs) He only picks on the ones that relate to how he deals with other humans, other people. Don't steal, don't murder, those kind of things. There's more to the Jewish commandments than that, aren't there? How about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How about keeping the Sabbath? How about not having idols? How about not worshipping any other god? All the things relating to God, he didn't seem to mention, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because this young man, he will have known off by heart what it says in Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus or anywhere like that. He would have known them. But one thing we do notice is that he knew he lacked something. (laughs) And he said, what do I lack? I know there's something missing. He had no assurance that he had eternal life. So Jesus said, if you want to be complete, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you've got, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. When you think about it, that's quite a statement from Jesus. He was in effect saying, if you follow me, you'll be fulfilling those first commandments about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This was an educated man. So, which part of this final command did the young man find difficult? (laughs) If he wasn't wealthy, would he have followed? (laughs) We don't know, do we? Is it just about wealth? Or is it more than that? Is it actually a misunderstanding about God's goodness and God's demand on our lives? Will you follow him? So the disciples then pick up this thing and say, well, we've given up everything and followed you. Following means walking in the footsteps of Jesus. It means being like he is. It's being, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, little Christs. It's not, as I've mentioned before, pushing the shopping trolley behind Jesus. It's stepping in his steps, being like he is. And so this Matthew 20 story then comes in. I'm sure there's other ways of interpreting it, but to me this is talking about what is the goodness of God like and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because that's the context. And it would have been probably, I don't know, I'm guessing, but Jesus would have been there and he'd been looking out on the hills and looking at the vineyards and thinking, ah, it's time to gather the grapes. I'll tell a story about gathering those grapes. And he tells this story. And uh, we've read it and we can see well, what's the justice here? This is not fair, is it? That the people who've labored all day, 12 hours, they didn't have EU rules on how many hours you could work in those days, that someone who's worked 12 hours gets the same, or, uh, same pay as someone who's only worked one. What's that say about God? Where's the justice in that, you might say? <laughs> but God, uh, Jesus, God, if you like, isn't a trade unionist. What this is talking about is that God's justice, his generosity, so far outstrips the way we think about things that it leaves us in shame. (laughs) His justice is so generous. That's what they couldn't get. It's not about what's fair. There's nothing fair about God. There's something generous about God. 
There's something exceedingly loving about God that's not to do with fairness. It's not fair that Jesus died on the cross, but it's exceedingly generous. Hmm. So the landowner's generosity was to employ men who otherwise were unemployed. They were the rejected ones who'd been kicking their heels in the marketplace, maybe going in the cafe for a coffee if they could afford it because they had no work. They were the off-scouring. No one wanted to employ them. But God's generosity says, I'll take you on. Even at the 11th hour, I'll take you on and I'll give you a day's wage. How about that for generosity? Is that just? (laughs) It's more than just. It's wonderful. And then Jesus picks on one of the workers. Did you notice? It's when they murmured, hey, we've been here working 12 hours and we've only got 80 quid. It's not fair. And it says, Jesus spoke to one of them. (laughs) What his name was? Let's say it was Jack. Good New Testament name. (laughs) Hey, what's your name? Oh, it's Jack. Okay, Jack. My friend. That's what he says, isn't it? Friend. You're so generous, was Jesus. So kind. Are you envious? Because I'm generous. (laughs) Is your eye evil? Because I'm good. Do you see people in an evil or envious way because I'm so good and generous? That's what this parable's about. God's generosity is magnificent, indescribable, beyond what we can really comprehend. Do you know it? (laughs) The young man didn't, that young ruler, he didn't appreciate God's generosity. Because when when it came to it, he put a value on what Jesus was saying and said, no, you're not worth it. That's a tough thing to do. But I guess Jesus asks us the same question. So it's quite a provocative bit of scripture, isn't it? Will you follow him? Will you follow him? So here's this young man. He recognized he's got a gaping hole inside him. I lack something. I've done everything right. I've kept the commandments. But I lack something. And Jesus said, you really want to know complete, what it is to be complete and fulfilled? Then you need to readjust your thinking. Forget all that stuff that you put your trust in and follow me. We'll never, ever feel complete and fulfilled if we don't follow Jesus. (laughs) Never will. And so those guys out in North Africa and Egypt and Tunisia, they're fulfilled. Hmm. The payment for sin is death, but God gives us the free gift of life forever in Christ Jesus the Lord. That is extreme generosity on God's part, isn't it? So in terms of reconciliation, God doesn't need to be reconciled to you. You need to be reconciled to God. I 
I was reading the other night, and uh, I came across this state, well, it was Oswald Chambers. I do like Oswald Chambers. He really makes you think, rattles your brain a bit. And uh, he was talking about sin, and uh, what, in essence, he was saying, and I just think, amen to that, is this. Sin is a disposition of heart. It's an attitude. And in some parts of the Bible, you see it says sins, plural. Jesus forgives us our sins. Yes, absolutely right. But sin, if you read it in Romans, for example, it's talking about a disposition of heart, an attitude. It's who we are. It's what defines us. And God's generosity deals with that. And uh, as I've said before here, you've heard the story before, when I was at school, I got fed up with um, my church upbringing. <laughs> because every week I did all the right things. I got confirmed in the Church of England, did all that stuff. And uh, so I'd go over, walk over the playing fields to chapel, all that. But I knew, and I used to talk to God about it, though I didn't really know him. So I don't get this. Why every week do I have to go and be, be forgiven when you put the guilt in the heart anyway? <laughs> What's, I just feel so guilty, and you, I never feel any different. So why do I have to keep trooping in to do this ceremony in the hope that that will be my forgiveness? I thought, you're a cruel God. I didn't get it. What was the answer? Well, one day I had to give up my rights to myself and follow him. I had a conversation this last week, I think it was, with a JW, Jehovah's Witness. He came to our door. I don't normally chat very long to Jehovah's Witness because I find a brick wall, and I told him that. But I quite wanted to talk to him because he had his young son with him. who was probably about 12, and I thought, oh, God, you love these two. You love this boy. I've got to engage in conversation with his father so he sees there's more to life than this. <laughs> and uh, we had quite a good conversation. This, this dear man was trying to persuade me that I needed to know that I was going to be part of the new heaven and the new earth and so on and so forth. And, you know, went on. And, and I said, look, I, I, he said, oh, don't you think, just, you know, read the Bible. And I said, I do, I do. I said, but I get fed up with talking to you guys because you never listen to anybody else. You just say it's got to be what I say and nothing else counts. I said, no, I'm listening to you. But if you don't, if you're to keep telling me what you say and never listen to anyone else, I'm sorry, you'll have to go away again. <laughs> so we had a conversation for a while. But in the end, you know, he realized, well, he had to admit, he didn't know his sin was forgiven. He didn't know he had a place in eternity. He was working so hard to earn it. Poor chap. He didn't know what it was to follow Jesus. He didn't know that God loved him. He didn't know that God had died on the cross for him so they'd give you a relationship with him. I felt really sorry for him. Pray God this young boy heard what we were saying. <laughs> we will never understand what it, what, what it cost God to hang on the cross. Never. Because sometimes I doubt because I can't understand. <laughs> I just can't get my head around it. So I think, well, maybe it can't be true. We're not asked to understand, <laughs> if that's any help. Try and understand. But we're asked to believe it. We're asked to step into it. It's an act of the will. Okay.
Listen to this. This is Isaiah. This is about Jesus. So just listen to the words. Everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face. A disfigure, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shock into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Who believes what we've seen and heard? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? This servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did it to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment. And that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. Did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Of Out of that tra terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it, and he'll be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of their sins, therefore I'll reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honor, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest, he took on his shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Sing, barren woman, who's never had a baby. Fill the air with song. Can't you see? Your barrenness is over. You can almost think, poor, poor Isaiah can't express this stuff. <laughs> sing. Sing. He's done it. <laughs> hmm. So, what does this mean for the way we love our lives? We look at Jesus, his magnificent generosity, his going beyond justice. God's love for the hopeless. 
the one in the marketplace for you and me. Got a couple more readings here. I've read this one before. This is Yancey. I think I read it last time I spoke. To do with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Shall I say it again? Is that right? This was um, Desmond Tutu, do you remember, uh, in South Africa, and he brought in this principle of truth, truth and reconciliation with Nelson Mandela. And according to the commission's rules, if an oppressor faced his accusers and confessed his crime, he could not be prosecuted for that crime. So here's a story. A policeman named Vanderbroek recounted an incident in front of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body, turning it on the fire like a piece of meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Vanderbroek returned to the same house and seized the boy's father. The wife was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a woodpile, poured petrol over him and ignited it. The courtroom, the courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who'd lost her son and then her husband was given a chance to say something. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbroek? The judge asked. She said she wanted him to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so she could give him a burial. His head down, the policeman nodded in agreement. Then she added a further request. Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me, and I still have love to give. Twice a month, I'd like him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can mother him. And I'd like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that he's forgiven by God. And that I forgive him too. I'd like to embrace him so he can know that forgiveness is real. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. He passed out. <laughs> he passed out on the floor, did Vanderbroek. And this is what Yancey says. Justice was not done in South Africa that day. Something beyond justice took place. The first step towards reconciliation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. To another story. I mean, this book by um, <coughs> Ingrid Betancourt. She was a politician standing to be pretty high up in the Colombian government. But during the process, she was kidnapped by uh, people in the jungle. They took her off for six and a half years, and it was, well, she was brutally treated. It was grim. And this was only seven months in, but it was her daughter's 17th birthday. She had no contact with her family. And she said, uh, the days were just awful. Everything seemed to be a thick fog. Seven months had gone by since I was kidnapped. But my interest had shifted. I had no interest in anything, not the outside world. It was all inaccessible to me. 
But when it came to her daughter's 17th birthday, she determined that she was going to celebrate it, <laughs> which was pretty good. I told myself the only way I would honor my little girl was to have a day of joy. And she remembered all the good things about her, and she threw a party. <laughs> and to that party, she had to invite all the people who were keeping her captive, who were teenagers armed with Kalashnikovs and all the rest of it, who'd been abusing her and fronting her and doing all those things. And she says this, they danced and they enjoyed themselves. These young people, my people who were keeping me captive, could have been my children. I'd known them to be cruel, despotic, humiliating. I could only wonder as I watched them dance whether my children, under the same conditions, would not have acted in the same way. Because of that, compassion appeared to me under a new light. An essential value for dealing with my present. It is the key to forgiveness. I thought, wanting to set aside any inclination of vengeance. That day of Melanie's birthday, I understood that I did not want to miss the opportunity to hold out my hand to my enemy when the time came. Staggering, isn't it? So I think we're greatly challenged. <laughs> if God is so great, and because God is so great, and has done so much for us, we really understand that, believe it, step into it. It's going to change the way we look at other people, isn't it? <laughs> and we'll suddenly find that instead of being all about me, it's all about other people. Because that's what God's like. God is missional. <laughs> he just is. To quote Hirsch again, we often speak of mission as being a function of the church's work in the world. But we need to understand that mission belongs to and describes God. We, the church, become partners in what God is doing. God is mission. <laughs> Core to understanding God's nature is the realization that God cannot be about, not not be about the business of mission. He's a sent and ascending God. I guess I'm thinking that if I'm like that rich young ruler, I'm going to measure God and take from him what I want and then not be prepared to follow him. But actually if we step into what God has really done and realize that he's gone way beyond justice, his generosity to us, the freedom he's given us is so huge, the way I look at other people is going to change, please, by the grace of God. <laughs> Um, I've been greatly provoked by 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 5, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Paul one day, <laughs> because I think he was a man of passion. I read Corinthians and I, I think, oh, it's this great book, isn't it, and great doctrine, and, but I hear him passionate. He says this, 
Since we know what it is to fear the God, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God. I hope it's plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We're trying to give you an opportunity to pray, take pride in us. So you can give an answer to those who, pry, who will take pride in what is seen and not what is in the heart. <laughs> we're out of our mind. If we're out of our mind, it's for God's sake. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we don't regard anyone from a fleshly point of view. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, his new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. This is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him to be no sin, sin for us so we may become righteousness of God. I don't get it. It's Paul was saying, don't you get it? God's come to set you free. He's been murdered on a cross, so your sins could be forgiven. Hallelujah. Fundamental change of heart and nature. Not just so you're forgiven. More than that, so you can be a new person in Christ. Hallelujah. And if we really enter into that, boy, have we got a message to say to other people. <laughs> Haven't we got something to say to those who come in this building in the week, to our work colleagues? And you might or may not be an evangelist. I don't feel I am. I'm useless at talking to people about Christ. But together we can. Don't you think that? Some can. They're gifted at it. But together, as a body, we're here for other people, not for ourselves. Isn't that right? <laughs> Isn't that fundamentally right? Isn't that what C.S. Lewis was saying? Isn't that what Frost and Hurst was saying? Isn't that what Jesus said? He spent the whole life looking out for other people and affirming them and blessing them and setting them free. His whole life. And they murdered him for it. Hallelujah. Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know it? Do you know it? Hallelujah. That thing that's bugged you all your life, you can never be free of. Forgiven. <laughs> wow, have we got a message. And we're charged with it. <laughs> I can't imagine what it was like for Paul. I plead with you, he said. Can't you see you've been given this message of reconciliation? Can't you see we're God's ambassadors? He's not here anymore. Jesus isn't here in the flesh. It's down to you and me. It's shocking. Why? <laughs> Why would God leave that message to a mug like me? 
Well, we'll mug together. <laughs> Hallelujah. I pray, God, open our eyes. I pray, God, that our wills will be bent so we'll step into what God says rather than questioning it all the time. I pray, God, like, like Jay was mentioning earlier about the doubters. Go out and make disciples. You might still have your doubts. I do. It's unbelievable. But God so loves people, he'll turn up for them, just like he does for me and you. So I'm kind of charging us at Cairns. 